I'll go ahead and we'll pray and, and we'll get started here just in a minute, so grab your coffee if you need it. Chapter 41 is where we're going to be, and it's not short, but fairly rich chapter. I'll go ahead and pray and we'll get started. Lord, I thank you so much that uh, you have granted us the opportunity to know you through your word, that you have uh, created this earth with the goal of bringing yourself glory and, and showing uh, even your created beings what an amazing, merciful, kind, gracious, loving God you are. Lord, that you do all this to demonstrate attributes about yourself, and yet we get to come along and see those things and enjoy those things, not just through the, the veil darkly now, but Lord, someday... Uh, we will get to rule with you and, and enjoy your presence and live the fullest that we possibly can that we as created beings can actually experience. And for that, Lord, uh, we are thankful. And as we look at your word and we see uh, your working in the life of Joseph, I pray that we wouldn't just see uh, what happened to him, but we'd also see uh, what life was like before the fall and what life will be like after you redeem this earth and you set all things right through your son. It's in his name we pray, amen. I do kind of like to go back when, when we've, jumping back and forth between Daniel and Genesis, and I do like to kind of go back and just review things a little bit of where we are at and how we came to get there. And we're in the life of Joseph and and we've, seen thus far that Joseph was uh, Joseph is, is in prison in uh, Egypt. He has been sold, or he has been thrown into prison after falsely accused by his master's wife, uh, yet he remained pure there in that situation. And he was imprisoned, or he was a slave, I'm sorry, uh, to his Master Potiphar, because his brothers had sold him off rather than kill him, and he is no longer in his home country. He has no hope of ever getting out of, of Egypt, of ever seeing his family again, and this continues to weigh heavy on him. In fact, this is still a great sorrow for him, as we're going to see as we progress through chapter 41. Joseph hasn't let go of his past. He hasn't forgotten who he is or where he's from and how he came to be where he's at, even with all these things that have happened to him. And along the way, God has continued to bless Joseph to the extent that the, the ripple effect of the blessing of Joseph that's gone out has blessed all those around him. Potiphar's house saw a tremendous blessing both in the management of his business and his household, but also in his fields and his cattle. And we saw the same thing that when Joseph gets thrown into prison, this foreigner who's thrown into prison for something that he probably could have been killed for doing or being accused of doing is instead slowly progressing up, actually probably quickly progressing up to a point where now he's put in charge of everything in the prison. And in that context, he finds these two men, the cupbearer and the chief baker, and they brought him dreams and said, hey, I had a dream, the, the, the cupbearer has a dream, and the baker has a dream, and Joseph sees them and cares for them and offers them the interpretation of the dream as interpretations belong to God. And we saw in that the insight that Joseph had had dreams before and understood then that not only were these dreams 
and their interpretation from God, but also his own dreams that he had that someday his brothers and even his own parents would bow down to him and uh, be subservient to him, something that is totally foreign in that culture, and yet that's what he had. So you have to imagine that if he believes that he can interpret and knows the outcome of the dreams of these two, he must still have faith that his own dreams will come to pass. We're going to see that he once again today has the chance to interpret a dream and, or two dreams, and again, he has the faith that these things will, in fact, come to pass. So there's a lot going on in Joseph's mind that's deeper than the surface. There's the dreams that he's had before that, that he wonders, when will these things be? How will this thing happen with all I've been through? As well as um, just the understanding his own situation. But as we look through Genesis, you know, we started back with creation, and I'm going to take us there to the Garden of Eden just to remind us of how we came to a point where Joseph is even part of the story and, and why it is Moses, as he, as he puts together Genesis, as he writes this down for the people of Israel as they're entering the Promised Land, why it is the story of Joseph is so important. We saw in chapter 2 after God is, of Genesis, after God has made everything, we have uh, him placing man in the garden and he, he's now in charge of everything. He's given him a great place to live. He's, everything around him is good. He's given him a job to do. Um, he gave him some hindrances. He gave him a specific rule, you cannot eat from this tree. And the relationship with, between God and, and Adam is good. It's not until chapter 3 that there's a problem. And I would just point out that that relationship between God and Adam is good because Adam has not sinned. There isn't any kind of read between the lines to see what it takes for Adam to be in a right relationship with God. Adam isn't working to get his relationship right with God. There's no... There's no obedience that's required of Adam to have a good relationship with God. The relationship with God is there. There's a disobedience that can break that relationship. And then God gives Adam a wife. Chapter 2, he, he makes a, uh, and fashions a woman out of Adam's own rib. So Adam is given, and the, and the two of them are, 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 will be told to procreate and, and to fill the garden and to fill the whole earth with people. And we certainly know the story of the fall and what occurs there and, and all of the plans that appeared to be made to go on forever in, in bliss are ruined. And yet again, as I prayed this morning, the, the plan of God from the get-go was I need to be able, to, or I want to be able to demonstrate my mercy and my grace to my created beings, that I am that amazing of a God that I want the opportunity to display these great things, and that's what we see happen. The fall takes place, and God starts working on his plan. 
And he works on his plan through individuals, and, and Satan immediately tries to attack that plan, and, and the first son ends up being a murderer, and he kills the second son, so it's not going to go through the first two sons, so then it goes through the third. And we pass down through time, and we get all the way down to Noah, and in the time of Noah, the earth is about as bad as it can possibly be. I, don't, I think it's, it's worse than even anything we see today, and we get to this point and uh, God says enough's enough, and he destroys the whole earth, ex- all the people on the earth except for Noah and what is contained in the ark of the, of the things that, that crawl and creep upon the earth. And we're left with just Noah and his family, and they come out of the ark, and, and while Noah was certainly uh, a hope for mankind and that he was able to bring them through the flood, after the flood, uh, Noah himself falls and we see something interesting form there, and that is that there now are nations. God asks the people, he says, okay, I'm going to have you spread out over the entire earth. And man says, no, we're okay. We're going to stay here in Babel. We're going to build this big tower. We're going to accomplish anything we want. But we like being stuck together, not in God's plan. And so God scatters them, and we see the creation of nations. Not just as a punishment of man, but instead a good thing, because In the creation of nations, God is working towards the completion of his plan. His plan of redemption is going to utilize this function of what a nation is. Now, the nation he's going to utilize has not been created yet. It's not been, these people have not been born. And and that's what we see when we see the introduction of Abraham. God says, okay, there's all these nations that you guys are living in. I'm going to create now my own out of the least of the people. And we see Abraham. And Abraham has Isaac, and, and Isaac is the chosen one, not, not Ishmael. And then Isaac has Jacob and Esau, and Jacob is the chosen one, not Esau. And we're working towards this promise, and God has promised Abraham not only that he will be a great nation, in fact, the father of nations, plural, but through him all the nations of the world will be blessed. So it isn't even that nations are bad, that they were creative as a, as a punishment. It's that they are part of God's plan, and, and God creates the nations, and through one specific nation, all nations will be blessed. And that's where we're at now, is the creation of that nation itself. And because you know the story, you know what happens when the people of Israel end up in Egypt over 400 years, they become a great nation. But even before then, we see God creating his nation by saying, okay, uh, uh, Abraham, I don't want you to blend in with the culture that you're in now. I want you to get Isaac a wife from outside of here. So you guys will be a distinct people. You'll have a wife from elsewhere or your, your son will. And that happens for two generations. And they create this very specific, unique group of people, this tribe of people, these 12 sons now, one of whom Joseph is. And Joseph is laying the groundwork for what, how that will happen. So we know because we know the end of the story, that's what's going on here. But it's a good thing to, to look at this because I think we, we get taken back there a little bit in chapter 41. So let's start here in 41 verse 1. Now it happens at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Then behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. The ugly and gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. 
He fell asleep and dreamed a second time, and behold, seven years of grain came up on a single stalk, plump and good, and behold, seven years thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them. The thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears, then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now in the morning his spirit was troubled, so he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams, but there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. And I appreciate Matt laying the groundwork for dreams in Daniel, and certainly when we saw Nebuchadnezzar have dreams, kind of the same thing here, uh, a little bit different in that uh, Pharaoh actually uh, remembers his dream and can tell him his dream, and even with that, they, there's no clear interpretation of what these dreams mean. When we finished chapter 40, we had that the uh, chief cupbearer, whom Joseph predicted would get out of prison, and he does, and Joseph tells him, hey, remember me when you get out of here because I don't deserve to be in prison, and the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Well, now, two years later, we see that change there in verse 9. So it's been two years that the cupbearer has forgotten Joseph. And these dreams that we're given are kind of the third set of dreams in, in, in Joseph's life. One of them is a prediction of what Joseph's status will be. That's the dreams he had. Then we have the prediction of the cupbearer and the baker's fate. And then we have a prediction of Egypt's fate. All three sets of dreams are prophetic dreams. And all deal with the role of the ruler. In the first set, the, the ruler is worthy of honor. In the second set, the ruler is, has the right to judge. And in the final set of dreams, there is an obligation of the ruler to the people. The first set of dreams dealt specifically with Joseph, but all three impact him greatly. And in all three, the dreams are about the dreamer and what happens to them. So in this dream, we have seven fat and seven gaunt cows and seven thick and seven thin stalks and uh, they're, they're a very memorable dream. They're very troubling to the Pharaoh. And uh, he knew there was a meaning. It wasn't just, I had a dream and it was funny. Hey, honey, I, I had this weird dream last night. Isn't that funny? And then we just pass it on. No, he knew there was a significance and a weight to it. People dream all the time, but this was definitely different. And there was, there was no interpretation. But verse 9, the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with the servants and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. We had a dream on the same night, he and I. Each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the bodyguard, and we related them to him and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one, he interpreted according to his own dream. And just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me in my office, but he hanged him or impaled him. Now, if Joseph had been remembered before the two years, it would have been the baker bringing him up to Pharaoh completely out of context of a dream. So there's two years that passed by, but there's a reason two years have passed by. The timing wasn't correct yet. It needed to be in the context of this dream. That and 
there needed to be the proper amount of time in prison to perfect God's plan and to prepare Joseph. It wasn't just wasted time in prison, sitting there for a crime he didn't commit. This was all part of God's specific plan. God himself knows the fate of every sparrow, but he also has his face set on his plan first and foremost. And God's ultimate plan was not to have Joseph in prison the minimum amount of time possible. Very often in our own lives, suffering, especially suffering when you have not done anything to deserve the suffering, we ask God to remove those things, but we also, which is fine, but we also need to understand, one, that he sees us and knows where we're at, and two, his plans are not our plans. His ways are not our ways. His, his wisdom and knowledge is far above ours. Joseph desperately wanted out of prison. Joseph totally understood his position in life. We're going to see that later here. And in spite of that, God said, no, not yet. You are not coming out of prison yet. And he sits there for two more years. Joseph's discomfort was secondary to the plan of God. And I think we all need to understand that. Otherwise, our own sufferings and discomforts will not make sense to us. Your own illness, your own uh, aging, um, the actions of those around you that, that, that bring you pain and sorrow will not make sense to you if you just try to see them through your own perspective. Joseph's discomfort and the mistreatment of Joseph was secondary to what God had in mind and what God's plan was. Yes, Joseph is going to be lifted up and receive great blessing, but he still spends an extra two years in prison because God's will is primary. And only God knows what the, the point of the more time in prison was for Joseph. Specifically, we can only assume that it was to prepare Joseph for what was to come. For Joseph was prepared. And it was to perfect the perfect timing of what he has planned. For not only Joseph's life, but everyone else's. And for God's glory. Verse 14 then, then, Joseph, or then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph and They hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon, and when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream, but no one can interpret it, and I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, In my dream, behold, I was standing on the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile, and they grazed in the marsh grass. Lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I'd never seen for ugliness in all the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full and good, came out of came up on a single stalk, and lo, seven ears withered thin and scorched by the east wind sprouted up after them, and the thin ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was no one who could explain it to me. So back in 14 through 16, Pharaoh, when he calls Joseph, and Joseph is cleaned up and shaven and brought before Pharaoh, he's made appropriate to be able to be presented to Pharaoh, and then 
Pharaoh defines then not only uh, what Joseph's position is, for Joseph himself had to prepare himself to meet the king, meet Pharaoh. Pharaoh then questions Joseph's role, and Joseph makes it clear that it is God who interprets dreams, not Joseph himself. You would, you would think that if you're in Joseph's position and you've been sold into slavery, then falsely accused and sold into, or, or sent off to prison, that any opportunity to lift yourself up would be one that maybe God has given me the opportunity here to say, yes, I can interpret dreams and this is my way out. But Joseph doesn't do that. Joseph defines exactly what his role here is. It is not me. Can you imagine saying that? I, I'll tell you what I would have said. I would have said, if I, and this is giving myself the benefit of the doubt, I would have said, I have a relationship with God that allows me to, to do this. He interprets dreams through me. But he doesn't even do that. He says, it is not me. Pharaoh, Pharaoh wants to know, are you the one who can interpret dreams? And, and Joseph says, no, I'm not. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So then Pharaoh says, okay, I'm, I'm good with that. Tell me what's going on. But the humility here and the understanding of what his role is tells you that Joseph has been prepared his whole life. He's a young man here. He is ready to act appropriately when called upon, even with the tremendous temptation to do everything he can to keep himself from being thrown into one more situation as dire as he has been in. And again, we see here that Joseph's answer, God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer, that God is able to interpret dreams and these dreams do come true, tells you that Joseph still knew that his own dreams somehow must come true, that they are from God himself. So in this text, we see the dreams repeated twice. It's uh, not just the two dreams of, of cows and ears, cows and corn, but we also have them repeated twice in the text itself. We get to hear about the dreams as they take place, basically, and then we get to hear the recount of the dreams. And when Joseph gets into that, we see that, well, I guess we should just go there, let's go to 17, or 18, I'm sorry, we read through that. Ah. So, yeah, jump down to, where'd we end? 25. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are the seven years, and seven good ears are seven years, and dreams are one and the same. The seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years, and the seven thin ears scorched by the wind, by the east wind, will be seven years of famine. It is as I have spoken to Pharaoh, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, seven years of great abundance are coming in the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of that subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. So we see there through verse 32, we see 
the interpretation of the dream that seven good years are coming and then seven bad years. And we're seeing the reason for it being mentioned twice, and that is that it's going to happen soon, um, that it's been determined, and that it's going to be quickly brought about. And I think that that's part of why we see it twice in the text, too, why we're not just wasting a page of Scripture by repeating itself, but no, it is saying that these things that God has determined will take place. You need to understand that when God determines that something will happen, it is going to happen. You as the reader need to understand that. It's repeated twice for our benefit as well. The set of dreams are repeated twice. This is for sure going to happen and it is going to come on suddenly. It's kind of like when, when in Scripture, when Jesus says, truly, truly, it's a, it's a repetition. Absolutely, this will take place. The interpretation is severe, clear, and convincing. There in verse 33 then, Joseph not only brings, presents to Pharaoh what the problem is, but he's ready with an answer. He's ready with a response. And all too often I look at my own self and I'm very quick to point out what's wrong, but uh, answers I'm not as willing to give on, on how to fix things, partly because it's easier just to pick on things and partly because people don't always like to hear the, what you do to correct things. But Joseph shows a maturity beyond his years. He's ready to tell Pharaoh, here's how to run your country. I'm not only going to interpret your dream for you, but I'm going to tell you the best way to figure this whole thing out and make this all work out to your benefit. That there is a way you can take care of this, Pharaoh. The, the, the boldness here of Joseph and his plan shouldn't just be overlooked. He is, having just been washed and shaved from being in prison and remembered by the cupbearer, that's, that's basically what his prerequisites are and his claim that it's God interpreting dreams, Pharaoh, not me. And with that position, he still has the boldness to tell the most powerful person, probably in that time, if not then, he is about to become the most powerful person in the world. Let me tell you what you do. Here's how you deal with what's about to happen. So verse 33, now let Pharaoh look for a man discerning and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. Let them gather all the food of the good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. Let the food become as a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt so that the land will not perish during the famine. Now the, the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. But this isn't the first opportunity Joseph has had to show that he can lead, plan, and organize. This isn't just a miracle that occurs outside of what, outside of a, a, or inside of a vacuum. Joseph himself, you'll remember, has the has had the opportunity to grow in his abilities to lead, plan, and organize. 
First in the household of Potiphar, and, and I mentioned the, the great uh, success that those around Joseph had had. Even while Joseph himself is still a slave to Potiphar, his boss was getting tremendous blessing from the presence of Joseph there. And then with the warden in the prison, the same thing takes place because of Joseph's leadership planning and organization. Everything that he put Joseph in charge of did well, and, and Joseph moved up. And we saw that even in that position, Joseph still cared for the cupbearer and still cared for the baker. He, he wasn't uh, arrogant and above everybody else because of his ability to organize and plan. There was something about Joseph that he was also very interested in those around him and noticed when those around him were suffering. Those of you who are in leadership roles would do good to remember that, that it's understanding those where they're at that's so important. So we have Joseph presenting this solution and Joseph connecting then with Pharaoh's position as leader and his obligations to all of the people who are in subjection to him. So Joseph is is explaining to Pharaoh, when you look at it, he's not just offering Pharaoh a plan, but he's offering Pharaoh a plan that means Basically, he's telling Pharaoh, look, it's your responsibility to take care of all of Egypt. You are the one who's in charge of all of this. You are the one who can step in and save people. You need to do this. And to Pharaoh's credit, we're going to see that Pharaoh understands what his role is, that he has an obligation to the people and the subjects of his country to take care of them with what's about to happen. And that to do so is good for that nation. We are seeing here the importance of the nation of Egypt itself in God's plan. So verse 37 then when it says, Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all his servants. We're seeing an insight into the heart of Pharaoh. That Pharaoh himself is recognizing this is my role. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. This is the right thing. Not just, ooh, it's neat. You can, you can interpret a dream for me or a pair of dreams for me. Thanks. That's a neat trick. If I have another one, I'll let you know. Instead, he considers what Joseph says. And it prepares to act on it. So verse 38, Then Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this, in whom is a divine spirit? So Pharaoh said to Joseph, The assumption is, they said, "Um, Nope, this is the only one we got that's like this. So Pharaoh says to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, There is no one so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house, and according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. So Pharaoh preserves his kingdom and his people. He uses this opportunity. He sees in Joseph that his God is with him, that his God has informed him, and his God continues to work with him. And even before there's any opportunity for Joseph to prove himself, as he has had to do in his last two situations, Pharaoh recognizes this and moves Joseph into that position. Pharaoh sees that if we do this, we'll have to forego the good years in order to put off 
the blessing of what is about to come for seven years in order to gain security for the future. We also see here in Pharaoh that he's willing to listen to another, even though this person was just pulled out of prison, because he's willing to submit to the plan as though it's coming from God himself. We see in this Pharaoh an ability to recognize qualities in Joseph that certainly took others longer to see. And certainly his own family doesn't recognize at this time. If you look at the Pharaoh's response to Joseph's dream and then go back or to, to his own dream and Joseph's interpretation, then you go back to Joseph's own family's in response to his dreams of his future authority that he would have over them. And I can't help but be impressed with Pharaoh. I think this says a lot, and certainly God was, was, was controlling the, the paths of the king here, but at the same time, I, I hate to take away from Pharaoh what he accomplishes here, what he does here. He, he seems to be a very wise king for these actions he takes in response to Joseph in the interpretation of the dreams. And this is where everything, you'd say, finally goes right for Joseph. So, we'll start back in uh, verse 40. You shall be over my house. Well, that's happened to him before, but never at this scale. This is over an entire nation. You shall be over my house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, see, I've set you over all the land of Egypt. Everything you see is yours. You can, you're in charge here. Then Pharaoh took off his signet ring from his hand and put it on Joseph's hand. So that would be like a, a, a symbol on his ring that says, okay, so you stamp documents with this ring. You, you show people this ring and you are my representative. When they see you, they see an image of Pharaoh himself. You will be in my image representing me throughout the land. And he clothes them in garments of fine linen and puts gold necklace around his neck. He's, he's got the best of the best. His appearance is as good as it can possibly be. And then he, he had him ride in his second chariot. He kept his own chariot for himself, but he puts him in, in probably the best chariot that's in regular use in all the country so that people will recognize who he is and, and proclaim before him, bow the knee, and he sent him over all the land of Egypt. Moreover, Pharaoh said to Joseph, Though I am Pharaoh, yet without your permission, no one shall raise his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Joseph, you have dominion over everything in the land. I have set you above it. You have dominion over everything in the land, except remember, I am the only one who is above you. That's the rule you can't break. I am the one who is still in charge here, Joseph. Then Pharaoh named Joseph Zephanath Peneah. He gives him his name. And he gave him Azanath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, as his wife. And Joseph went forth over all the land. And again, his name, we aren't sure. Um, 
probably has something to do with the interpretation of the dreams, probably something like God speaks or God is alive, God is living. And all this took place when Joseph was 30 years old, when he stood before, and I love this statement, he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. It wasn't he was brought before, it wasn't that they, 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 they brought him in before, it was no, the day that he stood up in the presence of Pharaoh. So Pharaoh exalts him. He sets him in charge of the land to rule and subdue it. The one rule is he is beneath Pharaoh himself and he is never to break that rule. He grants him his ring or gives him his image to act on his behalf. He surrounds him with good things. Everything that is possibly good and of value is, is given to Joseph and Joseph has access to everything he could ever want. Then he gives him a wife. And as we're about to read, he has two sons. Has anyone heard this story before? What is this? What does this sound like? Adam. Is there any similarity here to Adam? Where God says, I'm going to put you in dominion over all the land. You will be my image bearer. You will be the one who is an authority over everything around you. I'm going to make it as good as it can possibly be for you. You're going to be surrounded with good things, and I'm going to give you a wife, and you're going to have kids. And I think that is there for the purpose of us understanding how good, how high up Joseph has come. I think we are too. Certainly we're in the book of Genesis. We can't ignore a lot of the similarities that are shown here. But we also need to bear in mind, and that's why I took us back to the beginning of where we're working towards. We're working towards that the people of Israel, the people of Jacob, Jacob's sons, are going to go on to become the nation of Israel. And we have here the birth of that nation about to take place. God has placed them in the perfect position for what it is he is about to do. So verse 46, Now Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went through all the land of Egypt. During the seven years of plenty, the land brought forth abundantly. So he gathered All the food of these seven years, which occurred in the land of Egypt, and placed the food in the cities. He placed in every city, he placed in every city the food from its own surrounding fields. Thus Joseph stored up grain in great abundance like the sand of the sea until he stopped measuring it, for it was beyond measure. So Joseph fulfills the role he's been given, acting on behalf of Pharaoh. And the harvests were so good. So, so what percent was Joseph bringing in for the government? Well, a fifth. So you bring in a fifth over seven years. And because we know the story, we'll jump ahead. If a fifth was enough to feed all of them for seven more years, right? So, and the famine wasn't just in Egypt, right? It was everywhere. A fifth of, so you're talking about a level of wealth here that not only during those seven years 
was a fifth enough to carry him through another seven years as a nation, but it also carried the surrounding areas and really probably the whole known world. Mankind had not spread out over the entire surface of the earth in large numbers at this point in time. They certainly would have still been centered around this area. But basically, there was so much wealth. It wasn't just that you're going to have good years. It's like your cows are going to be fat. You're going to have so much coming in in this seven years that one-fifth of it will take care of you and all the nations around you for seven years. That's the wealth and the prosperity that took place that God brought about during the reign of Pharaoh under the guidance and direction of Joseph. Now, I like to think that Joseph himself was the type of man who was very organized and knew understood everything going on around him. And if you came up and asked him, how are we doing? And he could, he could without even looking at his tablet, say, you know what? Right now, I've got 735,000 bushels over in Cairo and um, I've got these four buildings going up at this cost. And I, I think he probably had a really good handle on everything going on. And in verse 49, the abundance is so great that he stopped measuring it. I'm married to someone who likes numbers. And I can tell you that that probably drove some people crazy. That they're like, well... How much do we have? Uh, we have no idea anymore. They just keep on bringing it in. They just keep, I didn't even know we had enough wagons to get this much grain here. It just keeps coming. This is, a, this is a harvest seven years in a row, unlike anything they had ever seen. And you can imagine that this first year, the first year that harvest came in, that Pharaoh would have been thinking, oh my goodness, this guy's right. This is true. And even more power and more authority would have been handed to Joseph. Joseph here is living an amazing dream in reality. For people, certainly by the second and the third year, must have been going, this is incredible. How did he know? How did he see? He must truly understand things that come only from God. For the blessings here are not only beyond anything we could imagine. But his prediction is coming true just as it did, or just as he said it would. And you can imagine the, the, the year of the famine then, when that came about. How they looked at that. Jumping down to verse 53, when the seven years of plenty which had been in the land of Egypt came to an end and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. Again, if you think Joseph carried a lot of weight during the good years, that seventh year when everyone was standing by, and you know people, just like in Daniel's day, were like, this Joseph guy took our place. They had to be fairly jealous. jealous. You just wait. This isn't going to end. And sure enough, it ends. After seven years, they, they have a year of famine. And it's like Joseph's level in everyone's eyes just went up even higher than it could have ever been before. They are now becoming the most powerful nation in the world. 
as the seven years of famine hit. And then verse 55, so when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. Makes good sense. He's the one who got us here. He's now going to carry us through this. He and his God. And when the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened up or opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, and the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. And the people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. I don't think we can truly understand the level of which God took Joseph from the depths of a cistern where your brothers are contemplating killing you or selling you into slavery and lying to your dad about it to the point where now he is by far and away the most powerful man in all of the world, second only to Pharaoh. Pharaoh himself is now elevated. The country, the nation of Egypt is now elevated. Egypt is in the center of of the world. Everything has certainly happened by God through Joseph. While the whole world is starving, Egypt is fine. The people turn to the king, and I, I do like here that it's the king here that is responsible for the people. In verse 55, the people cry out to Pharaoh for bread, and Pharaoh says, Go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. The people are in need, and Pharaoh takes the obligation he has to his people and provides for them through Joseph. The people cry out, and the king sends his representative. Don't you think that the Pharaoh probably would have called him by the name that he gave him, not by Joseph, though? I don't know. It looks like he called him Joseph. I'm going to go with that. Yeah. <laughs> I think it was probably more title-ish than name-ish and made him, um, he certainly would have been, they would have tried to make him more of, uh, in line with their own culture, kind of like Daniel, was, it was done with Daniel and his friends. But yes, I think that is interesting that they sent him to Joseph. But he is Joseph, and I suppose they get to call him. He gets to be called whatever he wants. He's, he's kind of important now. So Joseph and his plan takes care of Egypt and all who come. The blessings flow from the country of Egypt and its ruler through Joseph to the whole world. Under the Pharaoh's sovereignty. Under In this situation, there are some things you can imply from that, and we won't go there, other than to say that I do want to point out in this context, God cared about Egypt. Egypt was important to God's plan. So often we think of Egypt as being representative of the world, and it is. And it's representative of the world in a bad way. When the people leave Egypt, they're, they're told, you know, they're, they're tempted to want to go back there. And it's a, it's a view of them going back to the world and worldly things rather than pursuing God as they're on their way to the promised land. 
And it's given in contrast in that. But understand that God not only blessed the nation of Egypt here, but he, he preserved the whole world through blessing Egypt, that he provides for all of the nations. And so for those of us who know that God has a plan for the nation of Israel, don't forget what that plan is, that the plan for the nation of Israel, when Israel is blessed, all the nations of the world are blessed. When God promises Abraham, you will be the father of many nations, you will be the father, uh, and out of you is going to come the blessing of Christ himself, and Israel itself, my nation, will be the preeminent nation, but God doesn't say all other nations are bad and all other nations can forget it. All nations are important, even the ones we don't like. All of them have a role and a place to play, and all of them, that, that role needs to be fulfilled by Christ not only ruling someday in Israel itself, but also ruling all of the nations of the world through Israel. Israel is, is what God is going to use someday to bless all, of us, all the rest of the nations of the world. And here we're seeing God using the nations of the world to bring about the birth of his nation, Israel. But we skipped part of it, so we should probably go back. Now, before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, a priest of On, bore to him. Joseph named the firstborn Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and all my father's household. He named the second Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. And we've seen this before where the names of children are very important. All the way from Cain and Abel to Noah uh, to Jacob and Esau and the names of the individual 12 tribes as, as those men are, or those boys are named as they're born. And now we see the names of these two. Now the first one, Manasseh. God has made me forget all my trouble and my father's household. Well, clearly he hasn't because he remembers because he's naming his son about it. But this is happening when Joseph's life in Egypt is at its pinnacle. In that everyone understands that Joseph is the one who predicted and is now managing the incredible abundance that everyone is experiencing. Everyone is enjoying the, the incredible economic growth of Egypt, and he is the figurehead of all of it, second only to Pharaoh. And it's in that context that he says, God has made me forget all my trouble. Meaning, there is so much good that God has done for me it helps me to decrease the grief I have about my father's household. But in that, you understand that he does remember his father's household. And that is something that's still in his heart. And the fact that he was sold from there and he is estranged from all his brothers and that even now there's no real hope of seeing his father again, doesn't even know if he's still alive there's a sorrow here in Joseph. He's not where he's supposed to be. He's ultimately supposed to be in his father's household. He's ultimately supposed to be back home and he's not. He's in Egypt. 
And what he's been given and blessed with by God has helped him get over that. And we think, well, that's okay because you get to be in Egypt. But his second son's name, God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. So in his surplus, in his, his uh, prosperity that he has, Egypt is still considered in his mind after these last seven years of, of incredible blessing to him, Egypt is still in his mind the land of his affliction. It's not the land of promise. It's not the land that he heard stories of that his family would someday reign and hold, that the promise for all nations was going to come through Israel itself. He's not there. He's in the land of his affliction. And that also kind of reflects back on verse 51 to give him a picture that the land of his affliction isn't where he wants to be. He wants to be home. He wants to be in his father's household. That's where his heart is. It's no wonder we see later again, not a spoiler alert here because all of you know the story that he wants his bones carried out. He wants to go back to the promised land. So God is... God has made me forget my trouble in all my father's household and that God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. We see the difference between the two lands and the juxtaposition of blessing in the land of the affliction versus all the trouble in the land of promise. You'd think that Joseph would be, truly would have forgotten and Good riddance to them. They sold me. Look where I am now. I've gotten to this point. It's all okay, but it's not. His desire is still for home and family. He appreciates what God has done for him, but this isn't where he belongs. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. We thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to to see the birth of a nation in your word, Lord, and just the depth and riches that can be mined from from the text is is humbling. You've given us that opportunity, and for that we are grateful. We pray that we would see that your plan is a plan that's been in place since the creation of the world, that you had uh, ordained even our own lives, even what's happened today has been uh, under your sovereign guidance, Lord. And for that, we are grateful, Lord. We look forward to a day when uh, your son will return and take his rightful place and rule over all of us in the world and that we, as those who believe, will be able to rule with him and enjoy his presence forever. That we may see what your your ultimate plan for this earth truly is, Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen.